Well, if I may welcome you back to this afternoon's session. I hope you had good lunches in different colleges uh, and you got to, to chat to people as well. Uh, I had a, a very fascinating conversation with Greg over lunch, who it nicely leads into what we're going to be uh, thinking about this afternoon. But I'll leave that hanging in the air for a moment, just while I do some book-waving at you. Uh, I've got some books over here. Keith Ward, Why There Almost Certainly Is a God, Doubting Dawkins, uh, The God Conclusion, God uh, and the Western Philosophical Tradition, uh, The Big Questions in Science and Religion, there are those over there on the table, and also these books uh, by Martin Percy, I'm about to introduce, uh, Clergy, the Origin of Species. <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, the title of this afternoon's lecture, Why Liberal Churches Are Growing. Uh, and so there are only uh, single copies of these left, so just if you want to, we can take orders. Uh, and I'll place these, all of these over there. You can have a browse afterwards. So thanks to Greg, uh, who told me this story, how he had gone to his best ever experience of going to a, uh, a particular type of church. He went to visit his sister uh, and went with her to her church, to a very large evangelical of a particular persuasion type of church. Uh, 600 plus, and he used to bring in people from, I can see Greg is smiling as I tell the story, uh, bringing in about 600 people were coming from you know, a, a huge radius to the church, and Greg went along to the family service. I was a bit bewildered when the, uh, the preacher got up and the, the text, full-on text for the morning, was uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and got a detailed explanation for God's displeasure at uh, what was going on there. Uh, and he was a preacher from Australia, who uh, the church had all sorts of uh, OHP and uh, projection facilities, and he played a, a clip of a bushfire. Uh, and uh, as he was doing so, he was saying, and this is as nothing to what will happen to the people who will be burning in hell. Uh, which is rather a, a chilling uh, illustration of what Keith was saying this morning about people loving the concept of hell. Uh, and Aquinas saying, I can take great pleasure in heaven because I can think of the people suffering elsewhere. Uh, so it's live and it's real. I want to thank Greg for that story. I want to thank Bishop John, uh, Bishop John Pritchard, uh, the Bishop of Oxford, being with us this afternoon, uh, leaving another event to be with us. And he's promised all the way along he would be here, wanted to lend his support to affirming liberalism, which I personally think is, is hugely important. And I wanted to just check that I was not going to say anything that he wouldn't want me to say before I got up here after lunch, uh, even though there was no glass of wine. I apologise for that. Uh, but... Bishop John was just saying he thinks it is of fundamental importance that the three strands of the Church of England are equally strong. And he said if other groups of Christians, uh, evangelical or, or, or Catholic persuasion, to use those broad terms, gather together, why should there not be a gathering place, uh, to use his word, for, for those of a more liberal persuasion? So he thinks that it's fundamental that this strand or, or, or em emphasis within Christian faith is, is upheld and strengthened. So, first I want to thank you, Bishop, for those words which uh, I know you wanted me to reflect out into the gathering today, even to those who are, who are not Anglicans. I hope you'll take heart from that. 
And so when we think of why liberal churches are growing, and not just churches that show bushfires as illustrations of what's going to happen to us, I want to read just this introduction to the book, Why Liberal Churches Are Growing, jointly written by Martin Percy and Ian Markham. We want to set the record straight. So many commentators assume blithely that the only growing churches are the evangelical and fundamentalist ones. Yet those of us who are in the mainline progressive churches know that this is not the case. Canon Professor Martin Percy is the principal of Ripon College Cudston, which is the third of the theological colleges here in Oxford or the vicinity of Oxford. He's been principal there since 2004. Uh, he teaches and researches in three areas, particularly in practical theology, modern ecclesiology, hence the origin of species, uh, and Christianity in contemporary culture. He was chaplain and director of studies at Christ's College in Cambridge, and then also was the director of the Lincoln Institute for the Study of Religion and Society for uh, seven years, 1997 to 2004. Currently holds a chair in the theological education at King's College London, and is also canon theologian for Sheffield Cathedral, and coordinates the Society for the Study of Anglicanism at the American Academy of Religion. So, I don't know how you do it all, uh, Martin, as well as look after all the students. Uh, you may have noticed as you get the Church Times, and Martin may be purring uh, at this uh, report that went out last week, at the accolades that uh, Cudston College are getting for, for excellence in its care of students uh, and uh, its academic excellence. And under his leadership, the college is clearly going from strength to strength, and we're delighted that he's going to be speaking to us now on this intriguing subject, and uh, we welcome you very warmly, Martin. Thank you. Afternoon, everybody. Very good to be with you, and thank you for that uh, very kind uh, introduction, indeed endorsement, I would say. Um, uh, Marvellous, really. But, uh, well, I get a dog when you can bark yourself. Well, it's the other way around, isn't it? Anyway, but, uh, anyway that's very kind, and it's uh, really good to be with you on this uh, conference. I, I've never stood on this uh, step before. I, I, I do feel a bit like the accused in a court, really, and uh, <laughs> I want to say now, uh, not guilty. <laughs> I was uh, very appreciative of the references earlier on to uh, car parking spaces and uh, was uh, mindful of that uh, marvellous prayer which uh, anybody frustrated in Oxford or Cambridge has used trying to get their car around the place. Uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, help me find a parking space. <laughs> which, which I personally have found always works. Um, <laughs> never been let down yet by the uh, BVM, but um, these days I, uh, of course, enjoy the uh, rare privilege of being uh, married to uh, a fellow and chaplain of uh, Trinity College, Cambridge. It's just over the road, and she's got her own car parking space, so I don't need to do the Hail Mary prayer anymore. I just do in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The gate's open, and I'm there, really, which is marvellous. Um, you might be relieved to know that I'm actually not going to address anything that's in the book today, um, partly because I've got plenty to say, I think, about why I think liberal churches are growing. And although I'm going to say just a, 
a little bit about um, some sort of empirical things in relation to that. Uh, most of this is, uh, can be summarized up in, uh, sort of summarized in two words, really, in terms of a talk, and, and these words are uh, cheer up, really. <laughs> Uh, cheer up because I think actually uh, mainline progressive churches have an enormous amount to celebrate. Uh, I'll come on to what I think liberalism is in a moment and qualify some things about churches and growth and all these, all, uh, all these other things. But fundamentally I think sometimes what I'd call the soft centre of the church has a very hard time. Because it believes itself to be suffering and flabby and woolly and all the other labels that go with that. And really not doing terribly well. And in truth, actually, it is the largest minority tradition within the church. And I think does an astonishingly good job at holding people together and accommodating and driving forward the gospel. It's much better at evangelism than it knows. Far better at pastoral care than it ever cares to articulate. Much, much better at mission than it really comprehends to itself. So one of the things I'm really wanting to do this afternoon is to encourage you to think about the good places that you come from and what they really offer to their parishes and to their broader constituencies. Because I'm absolutely convinced that good, sort of middle of the road, vaguely liberal, inquiring, interesting, critically aware churches do a fantastic job of proclaiming the gospel. The difficulty they have is they don't quite know how to speak of that to one another and to themselves. Sort of typically English sort of habit, really. Mildly embarrassed, slight shuffling of the feet, not really sure what to talk about, and certainly not about Jesus to one another over coffee. To do so is to have committed a terrible faux pas at the end of church. <laughs> you should really be talking more important things like the church roof or the bats in the belfry and other things. But I really want to go back again and again and again to say that I think broad churches do a superb job of proclaiming the gospel. And I want to reclaim some of that ground for us uh, this afternoon. You might be interested to know where the, 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 the title of this uh, talk comes from, Liberal Churches Are Growing, why Liberal Churches Are Growing. And the answer to that is, uh, some of you may remember this, uh, is that uh, in 1972, uh, uh, an American contextual theologian, uh, sort of, I think, broadly conservative, a man called uh, Dean Kelly, produced a really interesting text called Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. And Kelly's thesis was, was pretty simple. This is a bit of a caricature, but it, it, it's good enough. He said that the, the higher the threshold of entry to a church and the tighter the doctrinal proclivities of a church were, the more difficult, in other words, you made it to join the more likely it was that you would achieve growth. And he contrasted that to low entry thresholds and sloppy attitudes to doctrine. This is a bit like comparing concrete to the liquid, that kind of thing. And his argument was, if you can be more definite about things, you can be tighter about things, you can raise the bar much higher, people will want to get in, it'll be worth joining. And a whole school of missiology flowed out of that in sort of subtle ways, really. You know, don't just do one baptism visit, do several and make them come for several months. If you do that, then actually people will know that you're serious. And the consequence of that, of course, is that by the time people have got to the end of that course, um, they'll be real joiners. If you just mess around by saying, what, you know, doing one little pastoral visit at the beginning, people think the whole thing is cheap and easy and they don't join as a result. Unfortunately, uh, Kelly wasn't around to witness 
the Alpha course, which I think would be a very interesting thing for him to have engaged with, because I suspect he'd look at the Alpha course and say, well, that's just for wimps, really. I mean, 12 weeks, Chardonnay, lasagna, salad, <laughs> bit of discussion, DVD, and a weekend away. I mean, what's that? But actually, in some ways, it just shows us actually how far the goalposts have moved over the last 30 or 40 years. So I want to say, slightly against Kelly, and this is the burden of this paper really, and the burden to some extent of the book in a rather different way, is that sometimes low thresholds and soft forms of inquiry and critical engagement and ease and relaxation with the tradition are actually just as gospel-based as things that are tight and high. Indeed, I might want to claim a priority for those things. I might want to say that by coming into something which is genuinely open and welcoming and not especially propositional might turn out to be something that is a bit more gospel-based and inclusive than some of the alternatives. So, where does this all go in terms of liberalism and churches? Well, I think the first thing I want to say for myself is that I'm a little bit squeamish about owning the title and label liberal. Happy to use it in a number of qualified ways. But fundamentally, I think what I mean by it is generous orthodoxy. I'm borrowing somebody else's label here. But a generosity of orthodoxy that is open to being critically faithful, to being questioning, but also to being passionate about Christ and the gospel. In other words, there is no shame in this gospel at all, but it is actually about being open to critical interaction with other traditions, maybe with other faiths, and certainly with contemporary culture. And in that sense, I suppose, I would want to say on top of that is that size does not always matter. There are many ways of measuring church growth, and we have seen throughout Christian history many churches which have been popular full, thriving, but have not been proclaiming, as it were, the full quota of gospel material. Nothing like. But they have been popular. And others that have been struggling away to proclaim the gospel and have been shrinking as a direct result of that. So size, quality, quantity, all of these things have to be borne in mind. Richard was kind enough to mention that... Um, I'm uh, currently the principal of uh, the Oxford Ministry course and uh, Ripon College Cudston, a, a sort of fusion, really, in effect, of non-residential and residential training. Uh, Cudston's been around for 155 years and was set up by William Wilber uh, Samuel Wilberforce as uh, a non-party theological college for the diocese, this diocese, and was always all about, uh, rather like that lovely uh, analogy we had earlier on, about not being either of the wings of the church, but really being the fuselage. So being uh, in touch, as it were, with evangelicalism and with Catholicism, but something that was non-party and right in the centre. And it is marvellous at the moment to have uh, a full college. There's 130 students. Um, it's almost exactly 50-50, male-female. Uh, some of them are here today. I'll not embarrass them by asking them to stand up, but, uh, but they're here. Uh, some of them are alumni as well. But it is marvellous to be part of a tradition that is proud to mediate between Catholic and Protestant, high and low, conservative, evangelical, liberal, and so forth. Because in the end, what is the church? The church is that place where the big conversation should really be able to happen. If God is truth, 
then for heaven's sake we ought to be able to face one another with our differences and explore these faithfully and passionately and in a way that is pastoral, full of integrity and not be afraid of the difference and otherness and definitely not be afraid of the disagreement that might result from this. On the contrary, the disagreements are a real sign that we may well have something else to pursue together with people that we currently profoundly disagree with. And one of the things I'm most proud of, I think, of all in uh, Cudston at the moment, amongst the uh, residential and non-residential students, is the way in which they are just passionate about engaging with those conversations. All different kinds of worship, all different kinds of theology, many different kinds of churchmanship. It's just a fantastic advert for the Church of England. I mean, I would say that, but I mean, I really think it is. Uh, and it's just super to see that that's been recognised in the way that it has been at the moment. But the recognition is in the lives and the fruit of the ordinands who are coming out. I also want to say, by way of just introduction, that I am well aware that these kinds of gatherings uh, have a slight tendency to attract folk who would be, let's be honest here, very at home in an SCM reunion. Let's bring back the 60s and let's reminisce about the Cold War between evangelicals and liberals. I just have a thesis at the moment that, for the most part, the Cold War that many of us remember, and some of us have the scars, is largely over. I know it's not over for everybody, because I'm well aware of the campaigning that is going on on certain issues to do with gender and sexuality and exegesis and hermeneutics. But fundamentally, for the vast majority of the folk in our pews, and many of those who are actually in training, the Cold War is a distant memory. It's true I could probably point you to a couple of examples of the ecclesiastical equivalent of North Korea. <laughs> and I'm on my best behaviour today. Um, I consulted with senior management, that's my wife, and um, I said I would name no names, but there are one or two examples of that. But for the most part, the Cold War is over. And if you want evidence of that, just get yourself along to something like Greenbelt this summer, where you will see evangelicals and post-evangelicals and folk of no particular persuasion really mixing it up and exploring what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century, dipping into fresh expressions, Iona, Teze, liberal Catholicism, evangelicalism, reading Brian McLaren and Jack Sponk, reading Keith Ward, and maybe John Stott. I know these seems like unlikely pairings, but it's extraordinary to see how people are prepared to weave things together, which is a sign that they are willing and able to try and make sense of Christianity in the modern world using all the available good resources that there are. And I just put it to you that the platform of the broad church is a place to make that happen a place where the conversation can really take place, a place where people can bring these things and not feel that they're bringing in some kind of taboo tribal identity, which actually has to be left at the door or alternatively wrapped in kind of plastic and then wrapped in lead and then buried 50 foot in the ground in case it becomes kind of toxic because you can't possibly speak of spong or stot in this context, in this place. These things are emerging and they're good signs. But they, of course, require a generosity on the part of our church leaders to recognise exactly what they are. They're signs of life. They're signs of hope. They're signs of synergy. And I also put it to you that liberalism, with its mediating tradition, 
is in a particularly good place to make some good sense of this. To really be able to draw these things together and actually say, right, okay, we, that is liberals here, are a people that don't believe we have all the truth. That's one of the things we start with. We just don't believe that. We might believe we have some better truths than others, but we certainly don't believe we have all the truth. We are not, as it were, propositional imperialists. We are by nature mediators and explorers, people who are hungry to discover the God in the difference and the diversity and even in the otherness that we thought we never would like. The consequence of that is you need an open mind and a generous heart if you are really to encounter God in the otherness. And that's very gospel-based. Very gospel-based. It's exactly what Jesus was teaching us time and time again in the parables. I was, uh, uh, as I uh, do back in Cudston, a wonderful village to live in, uh, I, for my sins, chair the parish council, which is uh, one of the little sort of dibbly jobs I do, really. And uh, we had a, a sort of a, a funny meeting, it's fair to say, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, uh, about a planning application, which had resulted in some fairly acrimonious things being said. And um, we were trying to sort of uh, put the thing back together again uh, at the last meeting we had. And uh, one of the protagonists in this argument, uh, when we were discussing which neighbours to consult when planning applications came around, that was really what the argument was about, uh, turned to me, and he's not a Christian at all, turned to me and he said, yes, but who is my neighbour? <laughs> now, <laughs> you don't get many questions like that at parish council. And it was really just tempting to say, well, actually, your neighbour is the person you rowed with last time. That's what that parable is about. It's the person you really don't like. That's the point of that parable. The good Samaritan makes a Judean choke because there aren't any. That's the point of the parable. Who is my neighbour? My neighbour is my enemy. That's the person God sends to help me. And who is your neighbour? If you're a liberal, who is your neighbour? And the answer is the person you would least like to help you. Jesus is teaching us all the time about his presence in communities that we fear and distrust and find offensive because he's there as well. Constantly peeking over those walls that we have erected and saying, hello, I'm here and I'd like to meet you on this side of the wall as well. It's lovely that you're there, but come and join me here as well. So the Cold War, I think, is largely over. Uh, we could have a very fruitful discussion about the North Koreas later, but uh, let me get on with the main bit of the text. I want to start with perspectives, because I think perspectives are really important, because I think where the church lives, where it thinks it lives, is um, fundamental to actually how we uh, orientate our theology when we're thinking about areas like church growth and evangelism. Here's what the Dutch missiology, uh, missiologist Hendrik Kramer has to say. The church, he says, is always in a state of crisis. Always. Its greater shortcoming is that it is only occasionally aware of it. <laughs> now, if you don't remember anything else today, just remember that. We've never been in any other state. And just look at the New Testament. Is there any book that we have in the New Testament that doesn't, in some sense, address a crisis of one sort or another? 
But we look back with our perspectives, and we look back with our rose-tinted glasses across previous generations and ages, and somehow imagine in an extraordinary way that everyone else had it much easier, that there was a recent time when everybody doffed their cap to the clergy. Everybody knew the Ten Commandments. They knew the Lord's Prayer backwards. They were pretty familiar with the 39 Articles. They knew the BCP pretty well. They sung him in schools, and the sun shined, well, much more than it does today. And it was all much nicer. But they had their problems too. And I again want to say, every generation of Christians that has ever lived has lived in modernity. It's just been their modernity. No generation of Christians has not lived in modern times. But what were their modern times like? They were different to ours, but they were no less challenging. No less challenging. So in terms of perspectives, here's just something to help you reflect on this. Here are some extracts from uh, the church warden's returns from 1578. Okay, so it's a long time ago in the Diocese of Lincoln. You have to remember that uh, in 1578, nearly everything was in the Diocese of Lincoln. So that is to say nothing, really. And uh, these are all from Bedfordshire, which is where uh, my wife and I served our uh, curacy. This is, uh, these, these are just sort of innocent sort of little things. Uh, church wardens in those days had, had to make returns every year to the archdeacon. They write a sentence or two, because as today, they're not terribly literate. And, uh, <laughs> and this is the most they can manage. So, Pavenham, our chancel is in decay and ready to fall down at the fault of Trinity College in Cambridge. Milton Ernest, there's suspicion of whoredom between William Swingland and John Fletcher's wife. The vicar's cut down the trees in the churchyard and has not employed them upon the chancel nor the mansion house. We may certify your worship that our vicar has sold five ash trees which grew in the churchyard and converted the money thereof into timber more necessary for the repairing of his house being in decay. Carrington, John Roberts serveth our vicar and we don't know if he's licensed or not. That's a fresh expression, okay? <laughs> Clophill. We present that William's spelling on the 23rd of March, being then called Palm Sunday in the church and time of evening service, before such maids, in other words women, uh, as had then received communion, did in their, see, in their seat lie upon his back very unreverently until the end of the first lesson. Now, you, you just have to get the image of this. First of all, you have to imagine this person, William Spelling, lying down in a seat unreverently, and I'll let your mind just play with that on FM, what that would look like. And then also, at other times, doth forget to yield due reverence in the time of divine service. Langford, our chancel's out of repair in timber of windows. It's the parson's fault. Our church windows are in decay by reason of fowl that cometh in at the chancel windows, which have broken them. So they've got chickens running around in the church that's broken the stained glass. Colmworth, lovely entry this. We've had no service on the weekdays, not from May Day till September last. No service on St. Peter's Eve, nor St. Bartholomew's Eve, nor Michaelmas Day. And we've had four children christened four ways. <laughs> And he, this is the person claiming to be ordained, he would not let the parish see his license. Likewise, his colleague, Sir Brian Hayward, did in the like case. Now, you have to get this, uh, this in context. This is a parish that hasn't seen a clergyman for nearly 18 months. Somebody turns up in the village and says, well, I'm ordained. And they say, great, you're wrong. Uh, 
you know, we've got four kids to baptise here, away you go. And uh, after the fourth baptism, they've all been completely different. They're scratching their heads saying, hmm, this doesn't look right. <laughs> anyway, they say, uh, they'd like to see his licence, and he says, actually, I haven't got it here. And you just wonder where he's been trained. <laughs> also, in those days, they didn't have theological colleges. Item that William Moore, same uh, parish, does withhold certain legacies from the poor at Colmworth, which his father had given. Humphrey Austin, church warden last year, would not give back the lead missing out of the steeple. (laughs) And so it goes on. Now, these things, I think, would um, make most archdeacons eyes water, really. I mean, either with pain or pleasure. Because you look at this and you think, well, actually, the church is in a far, far better state. But isn't it interesting that in 1578, the following things are taking place. First of all, there's not a single reference, just trust me on this, in two volumes of these church returns. Not one reference to the Bible in the vernacular. Nobody says, thank God for Tyndale. Thank goodness we've got an early version of the BCP. We're ecstatic. Thank you, Bishop. No one says that. Nor do they say, on the other hand, against um, uh, some of my colleagues in Cambridge, uh, where are our saints and statues? Give us back. They're missing. You know, we miss lighting our candles. They don't say any of those things. All they say is, when are you going to give us a clergyman? And what are you going to do about the state of our church? As I was saying, every generation of Christians that have ever lived (laughs) has lived in modern times. And here we are, 1578. That's all they're concerned about, really, and the moral welfare of their communities. Roll the clock forward just a bit, and this is uh, a diarist called Oliver Haywood uh, of a more Puritan bent, um, writing about an encounter he had on the Yorkshire Moors. November the 4th, 1681, I was travelling towards Wakefield, and I met a boy who would need to be talking. I began to ask him some questions about the principles of religion. I began to ask him some questions about uh, religion, and he couldn't tell me how many gods there were, nor persons in the Godhead, nor who made the world, nor anything about Jesus Christ, nor heaven, nor hell, or eternity after this life, nor for what ends he came into the world, nor for what condition he was born in. I asked him whether he was a sinner, and he told me he hoped not. Yet this was a witty boy, and could talk of any worldly things skillfully enough. He's ten years of age, cannot read, and scarce ever goes to church. I just want you to note the last part of that diary entry. Scarce ever goes to church. Well, he has been. And what's he learnt? Not a lot, it appears. This is someone who would benefit from the Alpha Course, it seems to me. But they didn't have that in 1681. But he's been to church and learnt absolutely nothing. My purpose in mentioning these things from the outset is to remind us that whatever shape or form our Christian land took in previous generations, it was not liberalism that caused people to take religion less seriously. You can't say that of 1578, and you can't say it of 1681. The medieval and reformation periods are often characterised as great ages of faith, and it's certainly the case that individuals and communities did have that faith. But the general scale of apathy, and occasionally antipathy, really should not be underestimated. William of Malmesbury, who was writing in the uh, 11th century, complained that the aristocracy hardly ever attend mass, and even the more pious, he said, heard it at home 
I quote, but in the bedchambers, lying in the arms of their wives and lovers. There's a whole new meaning to the concept of home communion. (laughs) (coughs) And I would just say, let's not go there again, okay? (laughs) And then he goes on, but, you know, the poor, he said, hardly heard mass at all. They stopped ploughing when they heard the bell toll for the elevation of the host. But then they carried on, because they had to work. Were the clergy any better? Well, Tyndale complains that few priests, for example, could recite the Lord's Prayer or translate it into English. When the Bishop of Gloucester tested his clergy in 1551, so we're into the Reformation here, of 311 priests, 171 could not repeat the Ten Commandments. Now, this is the awkward point where we might go into buzz groups and just see how well we do. Um, And I'll be awarding marks for seven and above, okay? points mean prizes. But none of this really mattered. I mean, there weren't seminaries in those days, because the impact of the clergy on their congregations was very slight. If you know Keith Thomas's really fantastic book, Religion and the Decline of Magic, which is uh, nearly 40 years old now, this is what he has to say from 1971, congregational life in the 1550s. Members of the population jostled for pews, he says, nudged their neighbours, hawked and spat, knitted and made coarse remarks, told jokes fell asleep, and even let off guns. With other behaviour, including loathsome farting, striking and scoffing speeches, to the great offence of the good and the great rejoicing of the bad. So that's what it was like going to church in the 1550s. You see, fresh expressions are so tame. I mean, you just, you know, we're not even there. James Woodford, writing in his diary of a country parson, also provides this marvellous, I think, insight into what it was like in the 18th century. Now, here's a clergyman who's got a, a lovely parish about the size of Cudston, actually. It's about 360 villages. And he says that actually when it got to Christmas or Easter, he would say that two rails of communicants was a jolly good show. Now, you can go to his church now, and two rails would be about 25 people. Now, that's really not great in the 18th century, but it's not a great age of faith and church attendance. Uh, You know, that great diarist from the the very late uh, 19th century, um, uh, Edward Stanley, when he bought his living again up in Yorkshire and sort of potted up there, discovered, first of all, he had bought a living without a vicarage, he had to build his vicarage. But when he built his vicarage, the first thing he did was um, he hired a verger and instructed the verger only to wake him up at 8 o'clock if anybody turned up. (laughs) Which is a very good attitude to 8 o'clock communions, on the whole. Unless you don't like sermons, in which case 8 o'clock's are for you, and I commend them. Anyway. So we've got these statistical surveys, we're still with perspective here, that continually support this thesis that Britain is a, a place where the vast majority of people continue to affirm a belief in God, but then proceed to do not awfully much about it. I put it to you that this is not a modern malaise, it's not much to do with liberalism, it's rather a pretty typical feature of Western, or more accurately, European society. Yep, there have been periods of revival, there have been periods when church attendance has peaked, indeed overflowed, but the basic and innate disposition, the majority tradition, if you like, is one of what one of my colleagues calls believing without belonging. Interesting phrase, 
because actually it's believing and belonging, but belonging in a very English kind of way. As one wit puts it, I can't consider myself to be a pillar of the church because I never go, but I'm a buttress because I support it from the outside. (laughs) But there's a lot of that about, isn't there? There's an awful lot of that about. People who are perfectly prepared to support the church in a myriad of ways tell you that they don't go, But then it turns out they've been to two weddings, three funerals, one christening, Christmas, Easter, one other festival, maybe harvest, mothering Sunday. And when you add it all up, it's easily monthly attendance and nudging towards once every three weeks. And these are the people who will bend your ear at Christmas and say, of course, I never go. They just don't like talking about it. And when they do go, they just don't realise they've been. (laughs) So... The question is, is our future really so bleak? And that seems to me really unlikely. Whilst it's true that Britons are rapidly turning from religious assumers to religious consumers and are moving from a culture of religious assumption to one of religious consumption in which choice and competition are spiritual and the marketplace of spirituality thrives, I put it to you that there's actually not much cause for alarm. Our churches, therefore, may need to panic just a little less about apparently bleak statistics that come along from time to time and just concentrate a little more on maintaining religion as something that is distinctive, public, accessible, extensive, whilst also at the same time as being distinct and intensive and mysterious. So dare I say it from the outset that in considering liberalism in growing churches, we could do with a little less flight and fright, certainly less neuralgia, depression and anxiety. There is a great deal in good, sensible, broad, generous and capacious faith to celebrate. And even in liberal churches, whatever they may be and wherever they may be, I think we want to celebrate the life and hope they bring to the broader ecclesial ecology. And so then, what of liberalism? Allow me, if you will, to paraphrase a parable of Jesus. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a conservative and the other was a liberal. The conservative went to the front of the temple, knelt down and prayed thus with himself. I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast not made me like this liberal. Weak on doctrine, weedy morals, watered-down creeds and wishy-washy ideas and general wooliness. But the liberals stood at the back, reflecting coolly on the irony of the situation. He prayed thus, Lord, keep me open to the ideas of others, even though they're probably wrong. (laughs) I tell you, said Jesus, neither of these went, (laughs) neither of these men went away justified. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, to be a liberal is to be, first and foremost, free. That's what we get the word from, liber, free. And the freedom that liberals enjoy is endemic to their spiritual and theological nature. The Oxford English Dictionary qualifies liberal and liberalism by pointing out that liberals are free from restraint, free in speech and action, free in giving, generous and open-hearted, free from narrow prejudice and open-minded, and open to the reception of new ideas, of proposals or reform. Moreover, they are of political opinions and favourable to changes and reforms tending in the direction of democracy. 
So to speak of liberalism in that kind of way may sound, I think, quite unusual to some of you. For some time now, liberal thinking has been the kind of bête noire in theology, as well as in social and political theory. Liberals have been blamed variously for the First World War, the Second World War, the Holocaust, all kinds of moral problems, lax ethics in the 1960s, various plays from the 1960s, introducing sex education to combat ignorance, not condemning ignorance, where there is no education, and all kinds of theological compromises. In my view, none of this is particularly fair or accurate. There should be some form of distinction, I guess, between liberal Protestantism, which was a theological movement of the 19th century and the early 20th century, and the more general liberal perspective that's been between uh, with Christian theology since its inception. But I'm not concerned with the former of these movements, if you like, classic liberal theology, which, although I think it's contributed a great deal to liberalism in the past, is undoubtedly part of that tradition of historical theology. I'm much more concerned with broad and general definitions of liberalism, which carry weight as a currency in both theological and in social terminology. And by this, I mean that liberalism, at least in Britain, has three hallmarks which I think make it quite distinctive. Firstly, liberalism is always receptive to contemporary culture, science and the arts. Because it's concerned with freedom, it's first and foremost concerned with pursuing wisdom and truth wherever it is to be found. There is therefore no fundamental or absolute discontinuity between the truth that is out there and the truth that is Christianity. As Simon Veal puts it very succinctly in some of her writing, Christ likes us to prefer truth to him because before being Christ, he is truth. And if one turns aside from him to go towards truth, one will not go far before falling into his arms. So, in other words, Veal is saying here, if you prefer Christ to truth, you're probably preferring an idol to truth. Truth, then, is really important. Second, liberals tend to be sympathetic and syncretic in applying knowledge and insights in particular situations. This requires, on the one hand, respect for revelation, texts and traditions, yet at the same time making sure that the hermeneutical methods are praxematically relevant. That's why there is something like black theology, liberation theology, political theologies of all kinds, gender and sexuality-based theologies. These are all infused with the liberal spirit because they're about the freedom of individuals and communities. And at the base of their method lies a freedom with the material of Christianity, which is not irresponsible, but creative. Third, liberals tend to stress that Christianity's got ethical and political implications so they're not content with a Christianity that is merely propositional or pietistic. Liberals believe that Christianity is relational and therefore is fundamentally about how religion takes on society, social evils, poverty, war, racism and the like. And characteristically, liberals tend to be quite optimistic about the prospects for society, believing that the kingdom of God can at least start to come on earth, albeit in a compromise form provided it is, as it were, hermeneutically and responsibly interpreted, lived out in society, or in other words, caught rather than simply taught. The question then, I suppose, is what of us in all of this in relation to liberalism? Well, liberalism has never been a form of theological perfection. 
I'm aware, as I'm sure you are, of the, the many shortcomings that liberal theology has had down the ages. Liberalism sometimes, in its desire to make itself accessible and understood, has sometimes been guilty of embracing its own self-importance and also in reducing the credibility and standing of Christian faith. This, I think, is not what most liberals intend, but we should certainly be aware of the seduction that is there at that point. So I want to say the purpose of liberal thought in relation, in relation to faith is never to compromise Christian faith, but rather simply to rediscover the means of maintaining it and developing it in the present. There's no question that this is a huge task in all kinds of directions. Liberalism, if it's going to succeed at all in this century and take some kind of lead, has to adopt an air of humility and be prepared to work in dialogue with other faith expressions. And that, of course, would enrich it and make more sense of what liberalism is right at its core, a deeply dialogical form of faith and intellectual development. Not, in other words, propositional imperialism, which is anti-propositional imperialism. We have to roll up our sleeves, engage and talk, and be prepared for the hurt and the wounds that sometimes come from that. And that requires liberals to recognise that they're probably not a particularly sort of well-organised party within the church. I mean, even this gathering notwithstanding, and other things like SCM, affirming Catholicism, and the modern church people's union, fundamentally, one reason that liberals are not particularly well-organised is because I think deep down they don't really believe in it. They believe in freedom, they believe in dialogue, they believe in exchange, and everything is therefore out-facing rather than tribal and taboo-based. But we need to be aware of that so that we can actually begin to organise the kinds of constructive conversations that are needed if the church, with all its differences, is able to transcend that and be the community of peace that Christ wants it to be, where people can dwell together in unity with their differences. Far from being a problem for liberals, I think this is really an opportunity, a blessing in disguise indeed. To be gripped, in other words, by the gracious liberality of God is to be set free. But this freedom is not to be prescriptive because the horizon always beckons us. Christianity is a journey, it's a pilgrimage. And there are many questions as there are answers, but most of all, the dialogue is about the pursuit of wisdom in the journey towards truth. And for us, that journey is a form of what I would call directional plurality. That is to say, knowing where you are going, or at least agreeing where we can start from, but recognising that the location and the trajectory of our conversations will always be broad and diverse. In this marvellous sermon from uh, 1984, David Jenkins, remember him? His enthronement sermon, 1984. This is what he had to say. I face you, he says, therefore, as an ambiguous compromised and questioning person, entering upon an ambiguous office in an uncertain church in the midst of a threatened and threatening world. I dare to do this, and I, even with fear and trembling, rejoice to do this, because this is where God is to be found. In the midst, that is, of the ambiguities, the compromises, the uncertainties, the questions, and the threats of our daily 
and ordinary worlds. That's what he had to say. Now you need a special kind of poise to live on that edge. But I think in some respects, genuine, passionate, faithful, orthodox liberalism is well equipped to bring something to that poise for the rest of the church. How to live with uncertainty and ambiguity. How to just gently push aside false certainty, false solidity, and hold those things together for the sake of the kingdom and for the Christ who is, was, and is to come, where only then all truth shall be revealed. So to be liberal here is to be engaged in the task of free thinking, freeing people to think in their situations. And to do that, we've got to engage and engage with diversity and difference. The challenge then is all about pluralism and diversity, particularly with people that may not want to talk to us and to be blunt with ourselves, people we might prefer not to engage with ourselves. But this means that liberalism can't be indifferent to things like passion and proclamation. There used to be a famous jibe about North American Episcopalianism that in summing up the decade of evangelism, many would comment that, quote, they thought that everyone who deserved to be an Anglican already was one. (laughs) To be sure, this is indeed funny, but it also captures something of the smugness and elitism that liberalism can sometimes be guilty of. The English equivalent is smirking at the Christian Union from the safety of the SCM seminar. But I think I want to say here again that this just won't do. For a start, that Cold War of belief is mostly over, as I was saying at the beginning. And moreover, liberals need to learn again how to evangelise. Not merely to convert conservatives into liberals, but non-believers to believers. And that, I think, is a real challenge. What does our evangelism look like? What is this gospel of freedom that we proclaim? It's no good just speaking to the other parts of the church, which we eventually expect to join us when they grow up. That just won't do. Simply not good enough. That's why I think the enemies of liberalism are not actually fundamentalism, or conservatism, or dogmatism. And I venture to suggest to you that they probably never have been. The enemies of liberalism are complacency, smugness, intellectual snobbery, laziness, and indifference. In other words, we are often our own worst enemies. To be liberal, to be engaged in the task of free thinking, and to be freeing people from their situations in which they are enslaved has to be about engagement, and that engagement, of course, has got to be intellectual, but it's also got to be orientated towards the world and the church, bringing the grace and power of God to situations through piety, respect and mutuality. And at the same time, it needs to face the task of being committed to a form of convergence in which all God's people can be one and begin to move forward. So the challenge that we have is always how to be generous and open-handed and liberating acting with integrity in society that's both secular and value-conscious in a spiritual world. And I want to argue, again, it's precisely at this point that we want to work theologically and faithfully and socially for the common good in a way that makes sense of the Christian faith in the modern world. 
Well, let me, if I may, then, offer four very brief vignettes that might just illustrate this for the sake of broad churches. And in offering these, I'm, of course, aware that the title of this uh, paper, Growing Liberal Churches, Why Are They Growing?, sets up lots of supplementary questions. What is growth? What's liberal? What's a church? So just bear with me as I illustrate these with these four vignettes. Firstly, size isn't everything. Think just for a moment about how European religion works. It's really not very much, at the moment at least, of a market ecology. It's much more of a utility one. In other words, people belong to churches unless they choose not to. And C of E, it's a bit like being part of the NHS, a sort of spiritual version of the NHS. That's really what it's about. But actually the market is encroaching more and more on the utility all the time. And there are some inherent interesting things going on at the moment which uh, subtly change the way we might want to look at things. There are also contrasts between between intensive and extensive religion. Uh, When we were uh, living in Sheffield some years ago, uh, there was a a wonderful kind of mega church right in the middle of... uh, the city, which was uh, I mean, well-known, we had very, very good relations with them, but a prominent evangelical charismatic church um, and uh, with, with a very large congregation, I mean, into four figures, I mean, an electoral role, I think, of about a thousand or so. And I was visiting one day to talk to uh, the vicar about uh, something that we were doing together, and on the wall there was this big map of uh, the church right in the centre of the city and lots of pins and ribbons going out to all the different parts of the city. And I observed this kind of sort of spider's web, and I just asked the question. I said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, these are all the church plants that we've got, and this is where we are. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, you've got a pin in my wife's parish there. And he said, yes, we have. You know, we've we've got a church plant there. Now, you can do a number of things at this point. You can can write to the bishop, sort of, you know, uh, (laughs) I'd like you to do something about this. Or you can follow your sociological nose and, and see what you think is going on. So we made some discreet inquiries and discovered that indeed there had been a church plant operating in our parish for about two years. And uh, they were meeting in a tiny chapel in a prep school right at the top of the parish. But nobody knew they were there. The map said, we have got this city covered. We're all over the place. We are everywhere. But on the ground, the only people who knew they were there were the folk who were attending. And I put it to you that there is a world of difference between extensive religion, extensive engagement, and dispersed intensity. And the map was all about dispersed intensity. A colleague of mine who's uh, uh, very high up these days in the Methodist church tells of uh, going to Australia recently and going to a new very plush housing estate where he was taken to a a very happening, emerging, pioneer, fresh expression church. Huge houses, big driveways, cul-de-sacs, large gardens, big SUVs in the driveway, but a new estate, and they were happily praising away when all of a sudden, power cut. All the lights went out everywhere, all over this new community. So, new house, no one knew where the matches were or where the torch was. So they all left. They went out walking, and they walked about a mile when they found another house where they could see the candles and the torches flickering through the windows, and they knocked on the door. Do you know what they found behind the door? Another fresh expression. Just less than a mile away. 
as my colleague says, they didn't know that either existed before and they've had no contact since. Dispersed intensity is not the same as extensive engagement. Now, I'm not here saying extensive is better than the intensive. I'm saying that we need a mixed economy. And that's what deaneries are actually all about, by and large. You rely on having some churches that are intensive, some that are extensive. But small, faithful congregations are practicing another kind of church growth. Second point, don't be afraid of slow growth. Remember that scripture testifies very often to slow, cyclical, repetitive forms of engagement. Many of the parables that Jesus tells about yeast and salt and sowing are all to do with growth coming slowly, or the mustard seed, or other things like that. So a challenge for us might not be about addressing the here and now, but realising that we're here for a very long game, that the things we are currently doing now, we will not see the fruits of in our lifetime. This will be in the medium and the long term. So it might be that for a diocese, or for a church, the best investments you can make you'll never see any fruit for. Maybe in a schools worker. Maybe in a new housing estate. Maybe in prison ministry. All of those things actually speak of the kingdom just as powerfully. Our difficulty at the moment is that we're absorbed with immediacy. We want an immediate return for our investment. And so much of what the church does in its world of growth and in its sowing and in its mission doesn't deliver an immediate result because God calls us to a deeper engagement in which things go much more slowly. Hence the question put in the Gospels by Jesus. What do you do to inherit the kingdom of God? The question put to Jesus. And Jesus does not reply, well, what works for you? That's not the reply. The reply is all about the slow work of discipleship. Sometimes we just have to be content to wait and realise that immediate growth may not be the success that we assume. And this indeed is the lesson sometimes of the Old Testament prophets as well. It may be that our time is a period of exile. And one of the staggering things about the Old Testament folk when they were in periods of exile, of course, is that they were terribly interested in how they could get out of this jam quickly. You can almost hear, can't you, the kind of Anglican voices of moderation and compromise speaking into the Old Testament prophets' ears. They'd say something like this. Look, I'm not saying worship Baal. I'm just saying that the Babylonians have done quite well and that we should just give them a chance. So don't drop Jehovah. Let's just go with a mixed economy for a bit and see how we get on. And if we can get 50 years off this exile, we'll be jolly happy. And what do the prophets say? Every time the message of the Old Testament succinctly summed up in a single word. Wait. 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 You're not in charge of this time. You're not in charge of the church. You're not in charge of the kingdom. And if this is our period of exile, there's only one thing to do, and that is be faithful. And don't fear that because you're small or struggling that it's over. I live in a village where the church has been around for a thousand years. It's probably, ironically, better attended than it's ever been. 
in its entire history. And yet it's populated by people who think that it was better attended in nearly every age than it is now. How can that be? It's all about perspective and waiting. Thirdly, know your enemy. Not secularism, not liberalism, not industrialisation. I think one of the things we really struggle with today is institutionalism. People do not like joining complex bodies. And the consequence of that, of course, is they run after spirituality, religionless Christianity, all manner of other things, anything to avoid the institutional church. And one of the things that really needs doing these days is rehabilitating the hope that complex, messy institutions bring to the world. Because actually that's how Christian stories and memory and teaching and practice survive. So we need people who are prepared to invest in their local churches, to see that what they get now may not be much, but the benefit might be in 10, 15, 20 years' time and the like. Fourthly, embody and practice what I would call passionate coolness. One of my uh, predecessors, um, Robert Runcie, who was principal of custom before eventually being demoted to Archbishop of Canterbury, it's a, it's a long way down, used to say that the spirit of Anglicanism was passionate coolness. Not cool passion, passionate coolness. There's a way of keeping these things together in a kind of climatology of the church, that passion and cool belong together. This is what he had to say in an article written uh, nearly 50 years ago. Confronted by the wistful, the half-believing and the seeking, we know what it is to minister to those who relate to the faith of Christ in unexpected ways. We don't write off hesitant and inadequate responses to the gospel. Ours is a church of the smoking flax, of the mixture of wheat and tares. Critics may say that we blunt the edge of the gospel and have become Laodicean. We reply that we do not despise the hesitant and the half-believing, because the deeper we look into human lives, the more often we discern the glowing embers of faith. Marvellous. In other words, we are open to these questions, to folk who are on the way, to folk who haven't quite got it yet, who haven't reached those high thresholds of propositionalism who haven't yet passed the church's comprehension test in order to get into heaven. None of these things have been understood. So we admit the half-believing, the half-discerning, the half-knowing. All of this is a good thing. I used to have a colleague in Sheffield who, uh, when he was occasionally questioned in the street about uh, when he had given his life to Christ, he would say, well, you know, I'm never really sure about this because I've started on this project, but I'm not really done. And they would say, but yes, you must have a date for your conversion. To which he would say, well, I haven't really got one of those because I'm still being converted. And then the reply would be, well, yes, I gave my life to Christ on, you know, July the 31st, whenever. And he would say, what, all of it? <laughs> well, that's amazing. Well, I'm still doing bits of mine. I mean, I just can't do it all at the moment, I'm, but I'm getting there. The half, it's all there, isn't it? In that midst, it's, it's about not being apologetic for recognising that this is a profound journey. A profound journey. When the early Christians gathered, they chose a very modest title to distinguish what their meetings were. They talked about the church being an assembly, which simply meant in those days 
just that, ecclesia, assembly, a perfectly secular term. What does that mean for us? Well, in the Hellenic world, if you could go back in a TARDIS in Doctor Who's time and get yourself back there, you would have discovered that if somebody invited you along to one of these unique Mediterranean ecclesias started by these crazy Christians who were knocking around all over the place, that this was an ecclesia like no other. The first thing you would discover about it would be that children were there. Because ecclesias were normally just reserved for adult males. Then you would discover different groups, Jews and Greeks and Gentiles. And then, horror of horrors, women present as well. And, moreover, were still all allowed to speak. The New Testament ecclesia, in other words, was incredibly radical. It wasn't homogenous. It wasn't zoned in to particular niche groups in order to, as it were, grow particular numbers. It was profoundly Catholic and difficult. And we have, of course, in our language, inherited this notion of parish church, which is another ancient word, parish that is, which, of course, describes the area of a Hellenic city lived in by the non-voting citizens. So you put that together, parish church, and you realise that in our English language, the recipe for growth is the inside place for the outsider. It's what a parish church is, the inside place for the outsider, the place for the non-voters, or what Temple put, William Temple put, more sort of, uh, in a more elitist way, the only club that exists for non-members, was how he phrased it. But that's an extraordinary vision of growth, because it will be difficult. If you're mixing classes and races and genders and ages, of course it will be struggle. I mean, anybody, actually, can set about the task of setting up a church for folk in their 30s to 40s of a particular social class, in a particular income bracket, in a particular area. I mean, there's no reason why that won't work. <laughs> None at all. But what about the Catholic vision for growth that's there at the heart of the New Testament? A community of difference. I want to know, in our churches, where are the simpletons who don't really fit in anywhere else? Where are the really old people who are just starting to smell a little bit off? Where are the people who haven't had their teeth fixed? Where are the people who don't shop at Gap and Waitrose? Where are the folk actually who don't fit in anywhere else? If they're at your church, congratulations, because you've got something really good going on. If the community of welcome extends to people who don't fit in, that's a profound sign of the gospel in the midst of the place that you live. One of my favourite writers at the moment is Anne Lamott, um, who in her book Travelling Mercies uh, has mercifully reduced the daily office and common worship to its bare essentials. She says that morning prayer could be reduced to one word. This is great, isn't it? And her recommendation is this. Whatever. And uh, the liturgy doubles for evening prayer. Ah, oh, well. And I've devised, uh, devised a midday office now, which is being trialled in the House of Bishops at the moment. Uh, it's again one word. Help. <laughs> but Anne uh, describes seeing a miracle in church. She's a Presbyterian writer. She's kind of miles to the left, sort of Californian, wacky, wonderful writer. Interesting. Anyway, this is the miracle that she describes in her church. A member of the congregation, a man called Ken, who's dying of AIDS. His partner has already died of the disease, and she writes this. 
There's a woman in the choir named Ranola, who's large and beautiful and jovial and black, and as devout as can be, who's been a little standoffish towards Ken. She was raised in the South by Baptists, who taught her that his way of life, that he was an abomination. But Ken's come to church almost every week for the last year, and he won almost everybody round. He finally missed a couple of Sundays when he got too weak, and then a month ago he was back, weighing almost nothing, his face even more lopsided, as if he'd had a stroke. Still, during the prayers of the people, he talked joyously of his life, of his decline, of grace, of redemption, of how safe and happy he feels these days. So, writes Anne, on this particular Sunday for the first hymn, the so-called morning hymn, we sang a hymn called Jacob's Ladder, which goes like this. Every rung goes higher, higher, higher. While ironically, Ken couldn't even stand up. But he sang away, sitting down, with the hymnal in his lap. And then when it came for the second hymn, the fellowship hymn as we call it, we were to sing, His Eye is on the Sparrow. The pianist was playing, the whole congregation had risen. Only Ken remained seated, holding the hymnal in his lap. And we began to sing. These are the words. Why should I feel discouraged? Why do the shadows fall? And Renola watched Ken rather sceptically for a moment. And then her face melted and contorted just a little like his. And she left the choir, went to his side, and bent down and lifted him up. Lifted this white rag doll of a man, this scarecrow. And she held him close next to her, draped over and against her like a child, while they sang together. And, adds Anne, it pierced me. The challenge I think the liberalism faces, therefore, is how to be generous like that. Open-handed, liberating, acting with integrity in a society that's both secular and plural, value-conscious, and all that goes with that. And the argument here for the liberalism that I'm trying to sketch in our churches is for a different kind of liberalism that sees innovation go hand in hand with composition. A vision that recognises, I think, as liberalism can or should, that the church doesn't only belong to its members, but performs all sorts of duties by being public, by being functional, by being aesthetic, by being distinctive, but above all by being a sign of God in the midst of communities, by being open to the world and open to the grace of God so people see that it embodies hope and charity and faith and attentive love in all that it offers in the life and work and ministry that it proclaims. My prayer then for liberals in this third millennium is that we will continue to recover that graciously liberal God who is the true author of Liber, of freedom, a free and open society, maybe the manifestation of that in the end, but in the meantime, a free and open church is a powerful sign of what God intends for all his people and all his creation.